Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. There are two quotes, descriptions, that describe and define the two functions of the soul that are beyond intelligence the transcendent functions of the soul. They are will and pleasure. Those are like the general generic energies that affect, inform all other functions of the soul. Because to some degree, behind every function, there's got to be some will. You've got to want. Behind every function of life, Every expression of life, seeing, hearing, talking, loving, hating, behind every expression of life, there has to be a certain amount of pleasure. Because without pleasure, nothing, nothing happens. Nothing moves. So these two energies, these two faculties, are the general motivators that make everything else happen. So in describing these two functions, we are given these quotes. There is nothing stronger than will. There is nothing higher than pleasure. There's nothing stronger than will means that will can dictate by force of its authority, by force of its power, it can dictate all other behavior. When will wants you to know, you get to know. When you want to understand, you become a genius. When you want to do something, all restrictions, all limitations, all even laws of nature are canceled. Like that example, if you you really want to pick the truck up because there's a kid under it, you'll pick it up. Now that violates the laws of nature doesn't matter. If you want it, you do it. So will is a dictator in that not only does it get its way, but it gets its way by canceling everything else, overruling, shutting down. Your intelligence means nothing when your will is determined. You want to pick up that truck? And your mind is saying, well, let's see now. The truck weighs, uh, and I'm, I don't think we can do this. And the will says, I didn't ask you. And the mind says, but this doesn't make sense, and it's not intelligent. And the mind says, well, then don't do it. I'll do it myself. You're canceled. And the same with all emotions, the same with all activities. The will simply ignores all other functions the properties and the nature of all other faculties of the soul and has its way because nothing can stand up to it. This is called effect from a distance. There's a way of having an effect by drawing closer. Intelligence, for example, is effective because it brings you closer to the issue. It brings the issue closer to you. It makes it appealing to you. It makes it fit. 
And so by drawing you closer and closer, you become more and more involved and things start to happen. If you're convinced that you ought to do something, you're going to do it. But what does it mean to be convinced? It means this appeals to your mind and your mind can't disagree with it. But then there's also an effect from a distance. The reason the teacher can't discipline the student, but the principal can, is because the principal is further away. His effect is not like the teacher's. The teacher tries to influence a child's behavior by drawing him in. Don't you want to understand? Don't you want to learn? Don't you want to get a good grade? You can do it. You're a good kid. You're smart. And you kind of win him over and draw him in. Principle doesn't do that. The principle has an effect precisely because he is from a distance. And it's the distance that makes the effect so powerful. Will has an effect by being distant. It does not consider you're a good kid, a bad kid, a smart kid. If you misbehaved, you're in trouble. So will is a dictator by overruling and canceling all other functions. But what do we mean that pleasure is the highest? There's nothing higher than pleasure. Well, technically, pleasure is the highest because that's where everything begins. So there's nothing higher. But that doesn't describe how pleasure works or how pleasure has an effect. What we mean that there is nothing higher than pleasure, it's because pleasure also controls and influences all the other functions. But not by canceling them, by elevating them. A simple example. Obviously, if you're studying a subject that you're not, you don't really want to study, you have to, the study is not going to be as keen, as bright, as productive as when you're studying a subject that you want. So putting your will into something not only makes it happen, it makes it happen better than if you're doing it begrudgingly. It'll make it happen better more thoroughly, more efficiently, because will wants it to be. And so it will be. But what happens when you're doing something or studying a subject that you actually find pleasure in? Obviously, if you're enjoying it, it's going to go better than if you don't enjoy it. What will be the difference in how will affects your study or how pleasure affects your study. Will will affect your behavior by making it more efficient, more precise, more complete, maybe not more honest, because you want it to go a certain way. What happens when pleasure influences other behavior, then it may still be complete and efficient but that won't be the main accomplishment. The main accomplishment will be that it'll happen on a much higher level. It'll be more refined. The way that pleasure affects the rest of the personality is by drawing all other functions 
into the pleasure. So what happens is, when a person is experiencing great pleasure, his intelligence stops trying to be intelligent and joins the pleasure. His emotions stop being emotions, they become pleasure. Everything in the system is caught up in the pleasure and stops functioning according to its nature. It's almost like everything in the person takes on the properties of pleasure, including the look on your face. You're studying a subject. The look on your face should be one of studiousness or whatever, concentration. But if you're enjoying it, the look on your face is one of pleasure. And you can't tell. Pleasure from what? Are you studying something? You're eating something? What is this pleasure? You can't tell because all the individual functions have lost their personality and have taken on the personality of pleasure. That's what it means there's nothing higher than pleasure. Pleasure draws everything into itself and elevates it all within itself. So, for example, you can do a mitzvah because it's a mitzvah. You've got to do the mitzvah. It's time. It's uh, the morning, the first day of sukkahs, lulav and You've got to pick up the lulav and eser. You have to observe the commandment because it's a commandment. What happens if there's pleasure in that fulfillment, in the observation of the, of the commandment, the observance of the commandment? All of a sudden, the performance is elevated. It's more refined, more spiritual, perhaps. Because now it has taken on the personality or the property or the characteristics of pleasure. And pleasure being the highest brings nobility or refinement or sanctity to everything else that it touches. So pleasure is like oil. It infiltrates, saturates, and soaks through everything else, and everything becomes oily. <laughs> Not a good mental picture, right? Like when something spills in the bag on you when you're shopping, you know, everything comes back oily. But in, with pleasure, it's a positive thing. Now, there are different levels of pleasure. Very seldom do we experience pleasure in its pure, unadulterated form. Pleasure within pleasure, or the pleasure of pleasure. Usually, pleasure has to be expressed through a vehicle. And there are different vehicles that express different types of pleasure. So, for example, there's the physical pleasures, the food, clothing, a nice house. There's the pleasure that comes from hearing. You hear pleasant sounds. It produces a lot of pleasure. A great composition, great music, creates a lot of pleasure. Then there's pleasure that comes from, from the eyes, from seeing. A beautiful sight is very pleasurable. A beautiful painting. 
Then there's pleasure that comes from, from emotions. When you feel compassion, there's a certain pleasure there. When you feel love, there's a certain pleasure there. Particularly, the goodness of the feeling. A good character, kindness, feels good. Even seeing somebody else being kind produces pleasure. It's not even you. Then there's the pleasure of intelligence, of intellect. When you master a subject, when you grasp an idea, particularly one that you've been having difficulties with, and you've been trying, and you finally get it, the pleasure is very strong. In the human experience, putting aside godliness, holiness, commandments, divinity, in the human experience, the highest form of pleasure is the pleasure that comes from intelligence. Or in different words, pleasure in the brain is the highest form of, of pleasure. The highest form meaning closest to the soul, most like the soul. The soul is metaphysical. The closest thing we get to that is the pleasure that comes from a concept, from understanding. And that basically is the definition of a human being. Now we always say, what makes a human being human? Intelligence. The most intelligent creature on earth. But it's not just having intelligence. It's the pleasure of the intelligence that makes us human. If there were a creature, some alien somewhere, who had more intelligence than we have, but their intelligence gave them no pleasure, some kind of weird creature, they're brilliant, but they don't enjoy anything. They don't enjoy their intelligence. They don't get pleasure from understanding. That would not be a human being. So when we say a human being is intelligent, and that's a compliment, what we mean is a human being can get pleasure from intelligence. That's a compliment. Having intelligence, that's not a compliment, that's just a description. So when we say a human being has emotions, a human being uh, eats, a human being sleeps, all we're saying is, these are the various ways in which a human being experiences pleasure. And pleasure is almost synonymous with life. Almost synonymous. Because in some way, pleasure is greater than life. Interesting observation. What is the difference between life and pleasure? When you say somebody is alive with a project, he lives his project, doesn't that mean he's really into it? He's got a lot of passion for it? Gives him a lot of pleasure? We sometimes mean that. So we really should call it pleasure and not life at all. But there is a difference between living with something versus having pleasure from it. Living with something is, of course, enthusiastic, but it's a necessary enthusiasm. 
Life is necessary. Things don't go so well when you're not alive. <laughs> Without life, it puts a damper on things, all right? So you have to have life in order for anything to happen. So life is a necessary kind of enthusiasm. Well, let's put it differently. Since you have to have life, I mean, you've got to live, might as well be enthusiastic about it. So there's an enthusiasm that comes from the fact that it's indispensable. So I was like, what kind of pleasure do you get from bread and butter? It's pleasurable. Steak and potatoes. Pleasurable. But part of the pleasure is, this is food. This is what I got to eat. person's got to eat. So it's an enthusiasm for that which is necessary. Real pleasure comes from that which isn't even necessary. It's beyond necessary. That's like the blessing we make after a drink or after a shahakal. We make a blessing thanking God for providing all living things with their needs and so on. There are two parts to that blessing. Thank you for providing me what I really need and for giving me more than I need. So there's a gratitude for the necessities of life and then additional gratitude for more pleasure than life needs. That's also called wealth. Pleasure is sometimes called wealth. Ashiras. What does wealth mean? What is the difference between wealthy and non-wealthy? Not the opposite. The opposite of wealthy is poor. But what is the difference between wealthy and not wealthy? Not wealthy means you have everything you need. But not more. If you have everything you need, you're comfortable. You're not rich. So rich means beyond the need, beyond what's necessary. The icing on the cake. Cake doesn't need an icing. But you have to have a cake. So if you have the cake, then you have what you need. You know, let them eat cake. So you have cake, you eat cake. What do you have to have icing for? Icing is for an additional pleasure that is not necessary. It's like the dessert. Totally unnecessary. And that's what makes it pleasurable. So pleasure means not the enthusiasm that one ought to have for life because life is so important and necessary. It's a pleasure that goes beyond necessity. The human soul has both a virtue and a fault in that it can find pleasure even in things that were not meant to be pleasurable. In the rational mind, bread and butter is not dessert. It's bread and butter. What are you getting so excited about? The human soul is so hung up on pleasure, has such a talent for pleasure, that it can experience pleasure even in things that are simply necessary. The human soul turns it into pleasurable. So if it were up to our mind, our rational thinking, 
there would be those things that are meant for pleasure, like vacations, sunny beaches. That's for pleasure. But getting into the car and going to work every morning, that's drudgery. A human soul is capable of finding as much pleasure in driving to work as on the, on the vacation on the beaches. The proof of it is there are people who work on the beaches. To them, that's the drudgery. They live there all year, all their lives, they work there. And to them, nothing special. It's their job. If they would come to New York and take a subway, whoa, that would be a pleasure. And to, to New Yorkers, what's the pleasure? So a human being can find pleasure in the strangest things. If you want to get really weird, we can find pleasure in pain. What is the effect that pleasure has? We've spoken about how it affects. It affects everything by permeating everything and drawing everything into itself so that all you feel is pleasure. It's a, an overwhelming experience. Not because it cancels everything, but because it swallows everything. It captivates everything. So your mind, your heart, your body, everything is caught up in that pleasure. By the way, what would we call that kind of experience where you're feeling nothing but the pleasure? That's called ecstasy. Ecstasy means every other function in the human system is caught up in this activity, in this pleasure, which means you don't feel anything else. When you're so focused on a pleasure, and pleasure is the highest sensation that the soul is capable of, all other functions that keep you rooted are not functioning. They're all caught up in this pleasure. You're getting too ecstatic. This is ecstasy. And you're, you're in danger. Because if you go a little too far, you're not coming back. You can die from the ecstasy. You expire. Two examples. Previous Rebbe was traveling with his father, who was the Rebbe at the time. And they were staying at this um, hotel, and they had adjoining rooms. The previous Rebbe was going to go out and run an errand, and his father sat down on the sofa, leaning into the arm, and began to prepare an essay on Hasidic philosophy. The previous Rebbe went, ran the errand, came back about two hours later, and his father hadn't moved. Actually, he had started with a cigarette. The cigarette had burnt out. There was nothing left but, this, but the filter. And the ashes had fallen right where the hand was when the previous Rebbe left, left to go on the errand. So he hadn't moved. His eyes were open, but he was not responding to the Rebbe's coming or going. So the Rebbe waited. 
many more hours until he started to become worried. At the end of this whole thing, I don't know how many hours it lasted, his father turned to him suddenly and asked him questions that were indirectly meant to elicit information. Where are we and what day is it? What had happened was that in the pleasure of the, of the subject that the Rebbe was analyzing or preparing or studying, he had lost all other sensation. Pleasure draws you into the... So much so that he had lost touch with time and space. Basically the physical universe. He didn't want to let on, so he asked questions indirectly, but what he really wanted to know is, where are we and what day is it? In order to get back into time, space, reality. The previous Rebbe then says that those hours that he spent then in that, in that room, that was the key principles that later turned into a series of, of talks that became a book, and it just grew. And, and, but that's when the seeds were established, or the principles were established for that great work. Another example was uh, this very holy man back in Europe who needed an operation. But the doctors were afraid that he wouldn't survive the anesthetic. So they, they hesitated with the operation. So he told them, he told the doctors, if you give me some time, I'm going to get into a song. I'm going to sing. I'm going to get into a song. When I'm into that song, you can cut me. Without anesthetics, I won't feel anything. And he did. And they performed an operation that took over an hour, and, and he felt nothing because he was into that song. So you see, pleasure when it's intense, is ecstasy. And ecstasy means the loss of all other sensation and function other than the pleasure. That's that thing in the uh, Talmud where certain sages studied the esoteric teachings and one went crazy, one didn't survive. The pleasure, the ecstasy that they experienced they could not get back into time and space. They couldn't re-enter Earth's atmosphere because they had left. That's the effect of pleasure when it's extreme and becomes ecstasy. What is the effect of pleasure? In other words, what is its nature? Not how does it affect, what is the effect that it has? There are certain key behaviorisms that are the true nature of our various functions. So, for example, what is the nature or the, uh, the character of intelligence? We know what intelligence does, but what is the flavor or the character of what it does? So you could say intelligence is basically a logical analysis or observation about the systems, the logic in the universe. Well, that's what intelligence is. But what is its nature? Its nature is that it rises. 
It is not content with what it has. It wants what it doesn't have. It seeks something higher than itself. Emotions, we know what they are. Love is an attraction. Hate is a rejection. But the nature and the character of emotions is that they take you downwards. The heart, the emotion, doesn't want to know what else there is. Every emotion is busy with itself. Can't be bothered with anything else. You can't come to a person who's angry, for example, and say, you know what would be even better? (laughs) He's not interested in what's better, unless you're talking to his brain. But if you're talking to his anger, he's not interested. I'm busy being angry right now. And what does the anger want? The anger wants to strike out. Punch the wall. Now, anger is an emotion. An emotion. That's a human quality. And all it wants is to punch the wall? Punching a wall, I mean, what's that? So you see, the nature of an emotion is that it wants to express itself, it wants to continue downward into something less significant than itself. It is an emotion, all it wants is an action. Usually a senseless action. A person is upset, he paces. What are you doing? Where are you going? No place, I just can't sit still. It's a senseless, meaningless movement. Even in the more positive, you love somebody. A love is a very noble and and admirable emotion. So if you really love somebody, wouldn't you just love to sit back in private, quiet, and feel the love? No. I want to go talk to the person I love, and I want to do something for them. You want to do something? You have an emotion. Why would you reduce it Why would you cheapen it by doing something? Feel the emotion. What happens when you discover a brilliant idea? You want to go do something? No. You want to be left alone so that you can pursue that wallow in it. But you don't want anybody, you don't want phone ringing. But emotions... Don't take you into higher emotions. Emotions take you into speech and action. Speech and action are less than the emotion itself. For the soul, because it's more meaningful for the, for the other person. I mean, I'd much rather you tell me you love me than sit there and think about it. <laughs> because your thinking about it doesn't do me any good. So, of course, for the relationship the behavior is more important. But in terms of the level of the soul, the emotion is superior to the action, and yet the emotion wants the action. It seeks its fulfillment in what is lower than itself. That's also why we often love things that are small. 
miniatures, babies, cute. We love things that are below us, that are smaller than us, that are tiny. We're also afraid of things that are tiny. Some of us, you know who you are. <laughs> afraid of a spider, a bug. A... So there are directions. Intelligence moves upwards. That's its direction. Emotions move downward. That's its direction. Pleasure the nature of pleasure is, it is expansive. It is that feeling of expansiveness. And that's why it expands and reaches and influences all the other functions. But what it does to all functions is it makes them expansive. When there's pleasure in your mind, your mind thinks bigger more expansive. When there's pleasure in your emotions, your emotions are more expansive. So, for example, when you're marrying off your youngest child, or maybe your only child, your, your joy is so expansive, you want your enemy to come and have a great time. In normal times, without the pleasure, you don't want your enemy around. You certainly don't want to feed him for free at your party. But when you have pleasure in the joy, then the joy has no limits. And all of a sudden, you will enjoy having your enemy come and have a good time. In fact, the Gemara also says that pleasure causes your bones to expand. Physical fact, when you get really good news that gives you a lot of pleasure, you can't get your shoe off because your bones expanded. Now, what is the opposite of pleasure? Usually we say pain. What is pain? The opposite of pleasure, which is expansiveness, the opposite of that is constriction. When the constriction is intense, it hurts. That's the pain. So the opposite of pleasure is not pain. Pain is the result. The opposite of pleasure is constriction. Because pleasure is expansion, the opposite of that is constriction. When you have pleasure, Everything is expansive. Where there's no pleasure, there's constriction. You think small. Your feelings are small. You barely can love. You love only certain people, only a certain amount. There's a constriction to everything, to the mind, to the heart, to your speech. Different people have different degrees of pleasure. The person who has a lot of pleasure are generally very um, loquacious. They talk a lot. They say a lot. They tell a lot. The pleasure in speech is expansive. And so there's a lot of talk. 
A person who doesn't have pleasure won't talk that much. Even when he needs to talk, he'll say the minimum amount of words necessary. And in those words, very little will be expressed because it's constricted. What happens even to the body is that when your pleasure is threatened, like when your life is threatened, your bones contract. You become smaller. Like certain circumstances in which a person can actually squeeze through an opening to escape a fire that is physically impossible for him to get through. Just like lifting the truck, he can fit through an opening that is too small for his, for his skeleton. So the skeleton contracts. So again, the opposite of pleasure is constriction. Of all the pleasures and of all the pains, probably the most powerful, which doesn't, doesn't get a lot of um, exposure, the most powerful would be the pleasure of seeing your children do something good. And that tells us a lot. First of all, of all the attempts at describing the essence of the human psyche, the libido, the ego, the search for meaning, why hasn't anybody come up with the true answer? You want to know what is the center of a human being's psyche? the goodness of his children. There is nothing that cuts deeper than that, both positive and negative. You can have the most miserable life for 99% of your lifetime, and then you discover that your child did something good, and it's all worthwhile. That pleasure makes up for everything. On the other hand, to discover that your child is evil? You think your ego is important to you? It's nothing compared to the... I mean, if somebody damages your ego, bruises your ego, you think you've been cut to the quick? You've been cut to the core? It's not even near the core compared to what it... What would happen if you should discover that your child is evil? So there's a chapter in Torah that talks about the rebellious son. That if parents have a son who does not listen to them, and he's a glutton, they take him to the court, and they say, this is an evil kid, and then they stone him to death. And the parents have to throw the stones. That's a commandment in the Torah. Now, again, the Talmud says that that never happened. <laughs> you know why? No one ever had an evil child. 
Not that there's never been an evil child. No one had an evil child. My child? Friends, bad friends. <laughs> Kid misbehaved, did something horrible. I knew he should stay away from those kids. Those rotten kids, I mean, they're bad. My kid? No, he's a good kid. No matter what the kid does. So what is the Torah saying in giving us that whole chapter about the rebellious son? The Torah is telling us the truth. The truth is, if you discover that your child is evil, you cannot live with it. You can't. It's either the kid's got to go or you're going to kill yourself. You can't live with it. That's human nature. Now, the fact that you also can't face up <laughs> to admitting that your kid is evil, well, that's your problem. So it never happened. There's no pleasure greater than seeing your child do something good. But this tells us another thing. Every parent is convinced that his child is good. I mean, come on, which child isn't good? It's a good kid. But when he does something good, it gives you an incredible pleasure. Why? If you know he's good, why doesn't that give you the pleasure? What does it mean that he's good? His heart's in the right place. He's got good character. He's got a good mind. He's got a well-balanced personality, temperament. He's a delight to be with. That doesn't give you pleasure. But he does something good and, and your heart is going to plots with pleasure. Why is that? It's an amazing thing that although the mind's pleasure, as we said before, the mind's pleasure, the pleasure we get from intelligence is the highest form of pleasure but it is not the most intense. The most intense form of pleasure comes in that which is the furthest from the soul. Pleasure is the closest thing to the soul. And where does it find its strongest expression? In those things that are furthest from the soul. There's a principle in nature, in creation. The higher something is, the lower is its expression. Because the higher something is, the more simple it is. The lower something is, the more simple it is. In between, too much baggage, stuff. But the highest thing is simple, pure, simple, pleasure, life. The lowest thing, pure, simple, pleasure. And that's where the circle gets closed. So the highest thing to the soul closes the circle by finding the lowest, the furthest thing from the soul. And there you have that intense meeting. It's like you throw a ball against a backdrop. The impact of that movement is strongest when it hits the wall, when it gets as far away from you as it can and bounces back. So when the pleasure reaches the lowest place, that's where it makes the most noise. That's where it's most intense. 
And that's why you find people who have lost all pleasure. They're clinically depressed. They're the only thing that gives them pleasure is physical exercise. Running, swimming, aerobics. The lowest activity, just plain movement, nothing intelligent about it. Not even dancing intelligently. Just jumping up and down makes them feel alive. What do you jump up and down with? Your feet. Why the feet? Because your brain would never do anything so stupid. What, jump up and down? What do you think I am? <laughs> I'm a brain, I don't jump. All right, how about your hands? You jump on your hands. Even your hands would say, well, that is so dumb. I don't do things like that. You want me to write something? I'll write, I'll paint, I'll draw. I'll even type. But jump up and down? <laughs> That's too embarrassing. The feet will do it. Because, yeah, why not? What else can feet do? So because the feet are the least talented, that's why they are the ones to do the jumping up and down. And in that least talented part of your body, doing something that takes no talent, only there can you feel pleasure. When you're depressed. But also... When you're having very strong pleasure, words won't express it. You get up and you jump for joy. The only, only place that it can find free expression is in the lowest activity that a human being is capable of. And that is simple movement. Movement of the feet. So when you have great pleasure, you get up and dance. I don't mean dance like sophisticated dance. <laughs> I mean just make with your feet. And that is the outlet for the pleasure. So to get it down to something practical, the pleasure we get from our children doing something good tells us, number one, that doing good is goodness. Goodness is the deepest pleasure we have. But where does it show itself? Not in goodness of character, in goodness of behavior. When the kid acts on something good, when the kid walks to help somebody, does something physical, that is good. Now that combination, goodness in action, that is the strongest pleasure that we are capable of feeling and the most noble. But then we're going to have to come to uh, a painful conclusion. If that is our strongest pleasure, <coughs> deepest pleasure, the goodness of our children, why is it only the children? Only their goodness gives us that kind of pleasure? How about our own goodness? If goodness is that crucial, if goodness is that precious, 
If goodness is that important to us, why only the kids' goodness? Doesn't that tell us something? Why do you get so much pleasure when your child does something good? How about somebody else's child? That's nice. (laughs) Not nearly the same pleasure. Why? Because when your child does something good, doesn't that prove that you're good? Isn't that where the pleasure comes from? You mean I'm good? I've been good? Well, I must have. I mean, my kids turned out pretty good. So we come to the realization that our truest pleasure comes from our own goodness. But how can we ever know that we're really good? When we see it in our children, then we know. If you see it in your grandchildren, then you know it even better. You must have had two generations worth of goodness in you because, look, on the other hand, it could be that has nothing to do with you at all. (laughs) You just happen to have good kids. And maybe it's uh, the grandparents who made them that good, not you at all. But, you know, why throw doubt? Your kid, kid is good, must come from you. Feels right. So when a person says, I don't see why I got to, why, why do I have to be so good? I don't feel a need. Well, then you must not be in touch with yourself. Because of all the needs a human being has, nothing compares to the need to be good. And that's the one nobody ever talks about. You need a good self-image, and you need your ego intact, and you need strokes, and you need friends, and you need security, and you need... No, you don't. What you really need is to know that you did good. Because that's where our pleasure lies. And if that's where our pleasure lies, then that's what life is all about. So in raising children, one of the first responsibilities is to mold the child's pleasure. Where does the child seek its pleasure? Where does the child find its pleasure? If you don't raise the child, the law of gravity dictates that the child's pleasure will be in food, in selfishness. Raising a child means promoting and cultivating an appreciation and a pleasure in things other than food, other than appetite. To find pleasure in helping a friend, to find pleasure in understanding an important subject, to find pleasure in doing the right thing. That's an obligation that parents have that you begin to work on at a very young age with your child. From the age of three, you teach a child not to be overly particular about their food. Because if you don't, and the child grows up really invested in the food pleasure, what kind of a person is this going to be? So you teach a child to, to eat whatever there is instead of being so particular. You teach a child to wait a minute 
Hold on a minute. Just because you're hungry now doesn't mean you have to eat now. We'll get you some food. The kid is getting, getting hysterical. He wants his food now. He said, well, I, I'll, I'll go get it. No, no, go get it. I want it now. So, well, it's not here right now. I got to go get it. He becomes hysterical. That's, that can't continue into adulthood. But it often does. There are people who, if their eating is delayed, they become violent. And that's not a new thing. That's been going on since childhood. Nothing's changed. Some children are so invested in their appetite that if you're holding the food in front of them, it doesn't appease them. They want the food. You say, well, here it is. Let me just open the can. Not the can, the jar. <laughs> they can't wait. They're angry and hysterical because, because you're making them wait. It gets even worse. There are some kids, you give them a spoonful of food, and then you reach for the second spoonful, and in between they become hysterical. Because they want it all now. Not one spoonful at a time. If we don't fix that, if we don't elevate a child out of that, you end up with a monster. Because all his appetites will go that way. And that's the, uh, the deeper meaning. The Gemara says, a man who marries his daughter off to an ignoramus is like throwing her to the wolves, to the lions. What does that mean? An ignoramus means an unrefined person. If he's unrefined, his appetites are out of control. So it's like throwing her to a lion. So being that pleasure is the highest function of the human soul, that's why the abuse of pleasure or the misuse of pleasure is the greatest sin. And that's why sexual sin is considered the ultimate sin. When you say a sinful person, what comes to mind? Of course, sexual sin. Because the violation of pleasure is not only a violation of a commandment, it's also a form of sacrilege. You're using pleasure incorrectly? That's going too far. You want to use money incorrectly? Fine, it's your money. But pleasure? Pleasure is sacred. Pleasure is life. You're destroying that too? That's gone too far. So instead of condemning illicit pleasures, we need to appreciate and respect pleasure so that it would be unthinkable to abuse it. That's a much more meaningful view of morality. We had a teacher back in grade school. And he was in the Lubavitcher Yeshiva. And he told us how he had become a Lubavitcher because his family had not been. He was in a Yeshiva in Poland. And during the war, 
the Lubavitch yeshiva had to leave Russia and they moved to Poland. And there he first met Lubavitchers. And he says, the thing that convinced me to join the yeshiva was I went to visit and I arrived at lunchtime and I saw these boys, the students, eating. And that convinced me to become a student in that yeshiva. The way they ate. What did he see that was so impressive? He says, they ate with reverence. They had a respect for the food. Not for the food. For the appetite. For eating. The appetite, the hunger, the impulse, they respected it. And they resisted it. They knew enough to respect it. If you don't respect your pleasures, you're going to lose the battle. You have to respect pleasure and then pursue it properly. So it wasn't that they looked down at eating. They considered eating a vulgar behavior. On the contrary, they had enough respect for a pleasure not to degrade it. So that's the way God wants us to, uh, to pursue our pleasures. In the awareness that pleasure is something sacred, don't waste it. Don't degrade it. Don't abuse it. Certainly don't use it against another person. Crime of passion. That's blasphemous. You're blaming passion? For crimes? Passion is the pulse of life. Of course, when something is that powerful, its abuse becomes very powerful as well. But in respect and in appreciation of what pleasure is in life, we treat it with, with greater care. And then, then we have a good life. Make sense? I have a feeling that if people were taught this view of the human being rather than the secular value-free version of human needs, impulses, it's such a soulless picture. It's got to reduce a person to, a, to an insignificant and irresponsible creature. If you bring in the soul, even the human soul. We're not talking about the godly soul. Just introduce a human soul and you've ennobled life immensely. But nobody teaches it. Nobody teaches it. Even in very orthodox schools. You're taught what is allowed and what is not allowed, what is permitted and what is not permitted, what is kosher and what is not kosher, what is nice and what is ugly but it's all outside of yourself. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, that's okay. This is kosher. That's not. What's going on inside? Who are you? No picture. And so you make up stuff. Who am I? Tzaddik. <laughs> or, no, I'm bad. I have a Yetzirah. I'm bad. It's so, it's really disheartening. <laughs> You haven't got a chance.
Are you a tzaddik? I am. <laughs> Want to be a tzaddik with me? <laughs> So this, this topic is very, it's what you see it is. It's necessary, it's a blessing, it's, it's a gift, it's, it's the hope for the future, yeah. What is the difference between joy and pleasure? There is some pleasure in joy, obviously, and yet they're not the same thing, because you can have pleasureless joy. You can have joyless pleasure. I'm having a really good time. Yeah, it tastes really good. <laughs> but there's no joy in it. <laughs> Actually, in order to experience pleasure properly, you first have to be happy. So joy is almost like a preparation. The difference is, in joy, there is a quest. In pleasure, there is contentment. It's almost like pleasure is like the conclusion of joy. It's the contentment of having what gives you joy. Joy is the pursuit. Pleasure is the conclusion. Joy opens up new possibilities, but it is not expansive. You know what I mean? Joy can stimulate your mind to think. It can't get your mind to think expansively. But if the mind was not thinking, joy can open that door. But opening the door means getting it to do what it does, not beyond what it does, not expansive. So joy does not create the expansion of the bones. It's the pleasure that does that. Simcha and Oneg. Oneg is pleasure. See, that's why Shabbos is a day of Oneg, not Simcha. Yamtiv is Simcha, not Oneg. Shabbos is Oneg, not Simcha. Why is Shabbos Oneg? Well, what is Shabbos? Six days God created the world, which means six days God expressed his emotions. Kindness, severity, compassion, the days of the week. What happens when you've expressed and you attained your goal? So Friday, at the end of all of creation, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Result? Pleasure. So what was Shabbos? Shabbos was the pleasure that he got from the six days of creation. And that's why Shabbos is a time of pleasure. And by keeping Shabbos, you're basically joining God in his day of pleasure. And that's why you're not allowed to do any of these menial tasks, which in the weekday would make you more comfortable. Turn on the light, turn off the light, cook the food, warm the food, Cool the house, heat the house. You leave it as it is because that's not where your pleasure comes from. Today is a day of pleasure, which is closely related to contentment. If you're really uncomfortable and you need the light to be turned on or off, 
you're not content. You're not content, there's no pleasure. So you're disturbing God's pleasure. It's like God is trying to keep Shabbos and you're, you're running the lawnmower. It's disturbing. <laughs> Imagine if on Shabbos not a single airplane flew. Not a single motor ran. Everything just stopped. Because what is your problem? It's good. Leave it alone. 